This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. I saw a lot of people would have problems with them. A lot of people have problems with Mark Driscoll and just wrote off the Bible. Well, if that's, you know, what the Bible teacher says, obviously there's something wrong with the Bible. But I believed in the Bible a long time before I ever got to know Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to believe in it now. So I don't think the problems with the Bible, then what is the Bible saying? Welcome to The Calling. I'm Richard Clark, the online managing editor for Christianity Today and the host of The Calling. Uh, I won't be interviewing today on The Calling. We've actually got our Southern correspondent here again today, Kate Shellnut. Welcome, Kate, to the show. Hi, I'm Kate Shellnut. I am associate online editor for CT, and I also oversee CT Women. So I'm happy to say that we've got a really admirable, smart, theologically sound um, women's ministry leader on the show this week. And I've been really excited about her episode ever since we recorded it. So you'll get to hear from Wendy Alsup. Yeah, I was excited about this too, because Wendy Alsup is just a voice that I've always um, appreciated. And I know a lot of people do. And she's been sort of like in the news a lot. I guess in the news is a weird way of putting it. She's been sort of like, actively speaking about some things that have come up, a lot of connected things. So there was some controversy about the the Trinity and complementarianism. There was a related controversy around the ESV study Bible. And part of it making news is sometimes just the fact that women are in on these discussions, and that's kind of worth covering in itself. And so I reconnected with Wendy over the summer when I wrote about the role of complementarian women in this Trinity debate. And through the conversation, we realized that we lived just about an hour away from each other. So I was able to follow up with her shortly after she and a handful of other women uh, schooled me in theology. I do not have a theology background, but they helped me understand it. And that that article is up on our site for anyone who wants to scroll through the archives. It's called The Complementarian women behind the Trinity tussle, and it ran in our September issue. But it was cool to connect with her after that and hear more about her story, her background. She came out of Mars Hill, which is going to be a name that a lot of people know because of Mark Driscoll. And I like that we get into it. We talk about what it was like to be a women's ministry leader in um, a church that's now sadly notorious, has a, has a legacy because of some of the remarks and teachings that Mark Driscoll had around women. She kind of admits that it challenges her views, her viewpoints, and sort of her assumptions about the Bible and, and church. But she, she talks about how she thought through those things. I thought that was really helpful. Um, if people want to read more from Wendy Alsup in particular, we have a new issue of CT coming out very soon that has an article from her about what we call the most uncomfortable Christmas verse. And she will be saved through childbearing. And most people's reply when you talk about that verse is the most uncomfortable Christmas verse is basically like, that's not a Christmas verse. Well, 
Alsop writes a great piece explaining why that is and what what it means, which I've found to be really helpful. If you don't have a subscription to Christianity Today, we have a special offer for podcast listeners. Just $10 for a year-long subscription. That's our lowest rate. You can get it at orderct.com slash the callings. Go to orderct.com slash the calling and subscribe there. You'll get 10 issues, tablet PDF editions of each issue, full access to the website and archives dating back to our very first issue. So there's some great stuff there for you. $10 is a really good deal when you figure you're getting the calling and some of our other podcasts for free already. Um, So part of that is paying to support the ministry that funds this podcast, as well as Quick to Listen, as well as you're going to have to fill me in. We've got a new podcast coming, right? Yeah. So so there's a new podcast called Monday Morning Preacher. It's a, a new Christianity Today podcast from the people here at Christianity Today, particularly part of CT Pastors and Preaching Today. They're producing a podcast basically for pastors by pastors. It's a really cool idea, I think. So basically, you're listening to specific clips of actual sermons, and they're talking about what it is about that clip that like really works. Um, usually focused on a specific concept. So introductions is one of them. One is like the, uh, you know, how to do good illus- illustrations. So this is like the the craft of preaching. Exactly. Interesting. It's a good listen, like for anyone, I think, who is interested in like how a sermon is made, right? Some people are very like process driven. And even if they're not going to ever do the thing, that they kind of like the concept of understanding something by breaking it down into its parts. Exactly. So that podcast is out now. You can check it out on the iTunes store just by searching Christianity Today. It'll be listed as one of the Christianity Today podcasts or just search Monday Morning Preacher wherever podcasts are given away for free. And stay tuned because here we've got our interview with Wendy Alsop. Can you tell me about where we are now? We are in on our family farm, my grandfather's farm in St. Matthew, South Carolina, and my grandparents' old farmhouse that I just remodeled and is now my homestead. This is a um, fixer-upper type dream. We're covered in shiplap or beadboard, and it looks like Chip and Joanna Gaines had their hands on it, but no, it was all you. So I'm happy to be here with you, and I'm talking with Wendy Alsop, who is a blogger and author of Practical Theology for Women and a Women's Ministry Leader. And the question is always the same to begin, which is, what is your calling? My calling is to teach. And I teach in a variety of different ways. But it, I, I find my calling very tied to my spiritual giftedness. And years ago, um, some significant people in my life pointed out that I had an ability to teach. And that's where I found the Lord pointing me at various stages of life with my kids, teaching my kids, but teaching uh, math to high schoolers um, and middle schoolers and then at the community college level. And I've done that for about 14 years and the last 10, 12 years teaching theology to women. And that's um, a real burden now, teaching women the Bible, teaching women theology and knowledge of God. And when did you realize that women were going to be part of your calling or a focus of your calling? Well, a lot of it started just informally. 
uh, with friends, just regular conversations over coffee. Years ago, it was discovering theology as a young woman myself with some friends over coffee at the underground coffee shop. We would talk and study together, and then we were intrigued by what we were learning, and we would share it with others. And then eventually it became a Sunday school class, and eventually it grew into a blog and then a book and just kind of organically happened over time. And we've talked before about how the internet has been this great resource for women to learn from each other and see each other live out theology, live out their faith in different ways. Before the internet, um, or maybe in in conglomeration with it, who have been the people or what have been the ideas that have most influenced what you think about gender and being a Christian? Well, early on, I um, had I've I've always mostly been in conservative churches. I was early on, I was in fundamentalist churches, and they had very strict views of women, and I felt a lot of dissonance with it. But I didn't know enough from Scripture to understand why. And then, um, as as an adult, I was in a church with a pastor who just really respected his wife and respected women in the church. And their uh, theological, you know, on paper, it wasn't necessarily that much different than things in earlier experiences I had, except that the pastor actually respected his wife and women in the church and valued their voices. And so I had a very... um that was informal, but very impactful because that pastor shaped me in a lot of other ways. I personally have a fairly conservative, orthodox view of women um, in ministry, but I also have mostly been around pastors who respected and valued the voices of women and always actively encouraged them. And so it never even occurred to me that strong theological pastors would Um, cause problems for women in the church. So it really wasn't until I got into Seattle and heard parallel, very conservative teaching on gender, parallel with a guy who didn't respect women, who had, you know, issues, um, that I started to really feel a dissonance. It caused me to study a lot more to try to understand why, why does this feel suddenly very limiting to me. Why am I afraid to speak up? Why do I not feel like my voice is welcome here? But then over time, I came to realize that's actually a lot of people do teach that a woman's primary thing, it's a part of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's foundational documents, that a woman's primary result of the fall is that she's going to have this desire to control the man or take authority from the man. And it was in Seattle that I first really came up one, with that teaching, and two, with the the fallout of it, what it looked like. And when we talk about gender women in kind of conservative evangelical churches, the buzzword that comes up is complementarianism. And so I wanted to ask you, given that that's a term that there are evangelicals who probably haven't heard of or couldn't say what that is, and then there are evangelicals who put a lot of weight into what that term means, whether um, because they disagree with it or because um, they put a lot of identity in it in terms of who they are um, as Christians. So what would you describe that term as meaning now and kind of what is your relationship to that label, given what you've gone through and the fact that you're continuing to study and equip um, women who are often in complementarian churches. Yeah, complementarianism was actually coined by a very specific group of people. I didn't, I didn't understand this when I was first heard the term. I just liked the term because the whole idea was 
the genders complement each other. And obviously, there are differences in the gender. Men and women have differences. There's just no way around that. But that they would complement each other, that the, the differences are good and that they work together for the betterment of each. I like that idea. So at first, I was kind of interested in the the title complementarian. But then as I came and studied it more, I realized it actually was coined by um, a specific group of people who founded the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood for very specific reasons. And it was very much, and, and they're very clear about this, it was a reaction to evangelical feminism. And um, so a lot of denominations were um, having uh, changing their rules so that women could be elders or pastors. And this was specifically to help reclaim and Southern Baptist Presbyterian denominations. Um, they worked hard to have a more conservative understanding of gender. But they didn't do it in a vacuum. They, they had other doctrines. In my opinion, they manipulated scripture to support their agenda. I have conservative convictions myself, but I don't feel like I have to change any kind of orthodox understanding of Scripture to rise to those. But they introduced some new ideas like um, eternal subordination of the Son and a reinterpretation of Genesis 3.16 to, to kind of support uh, their views that particularly that evangelical feminism was the fall playing out, women wanting to take control from men. And I just feel like that's such a harmful teaching. And I've seen women really hurt by that teaching. I'm very burdened about that. So over time, I came to realize that while I valued complementary genders, and I have no problem with a male-only pastorate or eldership, there were other things tied to the concept of complementarianism that I think Unintended, I, I mean, I, I give the best motives to the folks that came up with those, but I think whether they like it or not, despite their motives, there were unintended consequences that have, uh, you know, included uh, really maligning women's motives. And in particular, if you believe a woman's root problem from the fall is that she wants to take over control from the man, a woman can never voice and a opposite opinion. And then, and, and just like that, you've sucked out the value of complementary genders. If a woman can't come and say, well, have you thought of this? And then on the other hand, I, I feel like having edited hermeneutics, having worked with a ton of women writers, it feels like we're also seeing some great things happen for women in the church that we are seeing pastors who are saying, read this woman, read her book. It's just exciting to me when I get emails from men who say, your part of the site is the fa my favorite part of the site, even though it's by women. And so I wonder what is encouraging to you? What gives you joy about working with equipping women and kind of the role that you see yourself in now? Yeah, well, I've had that response, too. I write Practical Theology for Women as my blog, and at first, I was very clear. I'm not writing to you men, lest you think I'm trying to tell you what to do. But then over time, I've had a lot of pastors write me, you know, I really was blessed by that article, or I, I share your articles a lot, or wanting to interact with me about an article. And it's just encouraged me that I think a lot of those suspicions are being put away. I think that those type that type of teaching dominated the group for a while, but as it's been pointed out more and more over the last few years, I see a lot of people putting that away and realizing they need women's voices, and I am encouraged. I talk with a lot of pastors and leaders, and I can tell that they are doing what 
whatever they can because they know they have a need that they need women that you know one gender by itself was not good and the man needed a woman and it's 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 good to see it in the church see multiple women voices encouraged their gifts being utilized and valued and what was it like for you you mentioned earlier being a teacher in a classroom setting being a teacher to your kids transitioning into teaching over your blog through writing and then also through your book i will say that i don't think everyone who is a teacher is necessarily a writer, even if they do have something good to teach or say. So had you always felt like writing would be part of what you do? Is it something that comes easy to you or that you enjoy? Or do you feel yourself having to work at it? Well, it started by um, writing out transcripts for a class. I was teaching a practical theology for women class um, in Seattle, and we wanted to record. And up until that point, I hadn't written it out at all. I wasn't a writer. I didn't post blogs. And it was kind of a little bit before really the big blog movement. But I had to write out the manuscript to read out for that recording. And then that turned into my first book. And um, I do not think initially I did not feel like I was a writer. I didn't have the endurance. Writing takes endurance, which is why I like writing blog articles a lot better than uh, full manuscripts. 55,000 words is like, oh, man, that about does me in. But it, it takes endurance. And so you I feel like it's a, like learning to run a marathon. You, you, you write paragraphs first, and then you write a page, and then eventually you work up to three pages and then a chapter. But it is also something that I think you can learn to do, but it, it's, it, is, it takes practice and effort and a lot of editing. When did your interest in theology begin and kind of what was your background or training like in terms of learning what you've learned now in order to be able to share it with women in the church? My um, theological training started very informally. I was raised in independent fundamentalist Baptist churches, and they emphasized evangelism, but they did not emphasize doctrine and theology at all. So I got say, oh, well, no, I, I was saved in the younger as a younger person, but then I, um, after I got married, I we started at a Reformed church, a Presbyterian church, and the Presbyterians are known a little bit more for their theology than the fundamentalist Baptists are, and I was just kind of bowled over at first. What is this? This is wild, but it's also intriguing, and I kind of think of theology sometimes. It's similar to math to me, and I'm a math teacher, but it's where it's, you know, the parts kind of fit together, and um, it's intriguing to kind of consider how it, it it all works together and fits in. And so it it started just in my church, though, and over coffee with my friends, as we were all intrigued to learn these things together. Um, the sovereignty of God and what is Calvinism and what is uh, what if I if I haven't been learning Calvinism, then what was it that I was learning? And um, Wesleyan thought and the. They're just, just all very intriguing to me, but it started very informally. In fact, I haven't had any formal seminary level classes. It's all been through churches, reading books, that kind of thing. And are there theologians, thinkers, writers, whether through history or even people today, who you feel like really capture or who have captivated and compelled you, um, inspired you as you've studied theology? Well, to be honest... I feel like a lot of modern male theologians, they are very academic. 
And so I found very, very few that would write in such a way that it wet my appetite to learn more. But for a lot of them, they just confuse me and make me go find a dictionary. But John Piper and Tim Keller were two that, John Piper in, in particular in Desiring God, which is his great classic work, really wet my appetite to know God better. And J.I. Packer and Knowing God, both of those uh, wrote in a, in a passionate way that not an academic way. And I think Packer uses some pretty big words, but for the most part with Piper and Keller, I didn't feel like I was constantly going to find my dictionary to figure out what ontological or, you know, something else meant. And yeah, your your blog has this tag that it's practical theology. What does the practical part mean? Well, it means that I think theology, you shouldn't have to say practical. Knowledge of God, the Bible says itself, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There is a, if, if it really is knowledge of God, which is what theology means, the study of God. Biology is the study of life. Zoology, the study of animals. Theology is the study of God. Well, according to the Bible, that's supposed to be practical. It's supposed to lead to wisdom. It's supposed to break into the now. And and my experience, um, I did go to Bible college, and I would feel like a lot of the theology that was discussed was this upper level, you know, head level kind of stuff uh, with big words. And, and sometimes I see it right now with the eternal subordination of the sun debate. Sometimes I read some of these guys, I'm like, do you even think about why it matters? Because all of all of their logic is up here around, um, you know, old creeds. And but the reason we have creeds is because they matter. They matter in real life. And I feel like if you only talk about it without the practical, you've lost an element of it. You haven't really fully talked about it. You only it's like you got only to part A of a two part series and you just left everybody hanging because the knowledge of God is understanding. Um, so that's really been a burden of mine. If if you're going to talk about it and it doesn't impact um, someone in the here and now, I don't think you finished whatever the topic was you were you were supposed to be talking about. And how did that philosophy affect the way you have led women's ministry groups or been involved in terms of how you relate to women in your church or talk with them? Well, I do it a lot like I do with mathematics, where I feel like you have to start at the last thing the person understood. So I'm not going to present to women with words that I think maybe they've never had a reason to be exposed to. I'm not going to teach to students concepts that I haven't built them up toward, because all that does is frustrate people and make it makes them feel like it's not for them. And theology is for everyone. The knowledge of God um, you know, uh, it's for everyone. And we've, I, I just, I think math is for everyone too, but for so often it's only these higher level mathematicians who, um, articulate math concepts. And then you leave everybody else in the dust when actually it really matters. But we did that with theology. And sometimes if you talk with guys with doctorates in theology, they're almost indecipherable. And I just think, oh, that's such a shame because the knowledge of the Holy One is for the common man. And and it matters right here in the day in, day out on a farm. But it's not just, you know, ethics that matter on the farm. It's the knowledge of God. It's the character of the Holy One. 
that matters in the day in and day out. And we got to connect those two. I love that you've put a parallel between math and theology. And I want to ask you specifically about math now. Does math also get a bad rap? You hear so many people say, I'm not a math person. Do you think there's a beauty in that that too many of us are overlooking? Yeah, I do. And I think similar to our problems in teaching theology, we have a problem because math often gets taught by people who never struggled with math. And so, you know, you don't have a lot of people who struggle with math that go into math education. But um, it was really helpful to me, actually, and it was in a master's level class, but I struggled so in a class to understand, like, where I would walk by the classroom and start crying. It was so hard. <laughs> but it really helped me as a teacher to understand the struggle that a lot of people have. And I've I've tried to always go back to a place where every student can feel like I started at a place they knew and I helped them take the steps because apart from understanding, and see, that's the thing. If we don't understand it, we're not going to like it. You know, people think they're not a math person because they don't understand math. That's that's a simple thing. You start to understand it and then it's like, a you know, a light goes on. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, if it makes sense, it starts to become valuable. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So you've been referencing a church in Seattle, and that was Mars Hill Church, which is a name that kind of everybody knows at this point. And so you've had kind of a long history and background there. And I have a slight piece of history where um, the first time that I heard the gospel in a way that I thought was true and kind of life-changing was when I was reporting on a Mars Hill Church plant wow. in Chicago. Uh-huh. So I have kind of my trajectory as a Christian dates back some way to Mars Hill. So I wanted to ask you about what it was like being there, I guess, in almost like peak growth time. Right. Right, right. Like when Mars Hill was kind of the church on a hill for a lot of churches in America. Um, that, yeah, all the way in Chicago, I, I saw a church out on Mars Hill saying, we want to grow that here. So what was it like being on the inside in those times? And what were the good days like? Were there good days? Yeah, there were good days. And, you know, that your story is part of it. And it's easy. I think a lot of us um, struggle. I, I have a lot of friends that have come out of Mars Hill. And I, I have, too, struggled to remember anything good because it's almost like you can't hold both at the same time, but you can. You can hold both. And I had a lot of my growth. I made a lot of great friends. And I learned things under Mark Driscoll. I have things I still quote about um, that he taught. 
And, and you only grow during the time we were there, we grew from 800 to 6,000. Wow. And that's like in five years, six years, you don't grow like that because you're totally giving out nonsense. But the things he said really resonated. And there was many wonderful, earnest Christians. Um, and I think Mark was gifted in many ways. So I, I hold to a both and there were hard things and ultimately and there was a fork in the road I think where pride was chosen some some uh I think really you know it is like the fundamental issue of pride where you start to think you actually were responsible and that you need to be protected because you were responsible for these things that were happening and I could kind of see that fork in the road where that mentality started to take over and that was very sad and unfortunate and I think God is not one much for letting his glory go to another. So, but there were some really good things and I do not throw out all of it. I grew a lot. And you were a deacon and remind me like what roles that you served. When yeah, you were I was there. deacon of women's theology and teaching. You know, like the cynic in me says, oh yeah, you were the token woman. But then on the flip side, it was a privilege to be able to speak into women's the- theological things and um, lead women's ministry outreaches, planned a lot of women's retreats and events. And those were really neat, neat times. I will say I, at that point, still held that Marsville was where I was really taught that a woman's problem from the fall was this desire to take over control from the man. And I think Mark really, really believed that. And so um, I taught it some too, and I have some regrets about how I impacted women during that time, because I, I I bought into some of that for a while. And coming out of it, how have you, yeah, come to terms with that, forgiving yourself? How's God given you grace for that? And then also, how have you resisted despair about the church? I mean, there are people who didn't even go to Mars Hill who are ready to write off mega churches because of Mars Hill. So, so how does your Christian life continue um, when you did get to the point where you said, we cannot, we cannot be involved in this anymore. This is problematic. Well, for me, I was very fortunate that I went um, immediately into another church in Seattle that was actually a church plant, a Presbyterian church plant around the time that Mars Hill started. They had had a lot of struggles early on, had not grown at the same level that Mars Hill grew, but um, they had a similar vision for um, ministering in the community. And the pastor was a slow and steady guy. And the church was a slow and steady church. And so um, I, I feel like I, I had been going to church with the hare, and then I switched over to the tortoise. And I got a vision for how slow and steady and mature. It helped me because it was still the same philosophy, uh, root theological philosophy, but it was had lost the trappings of um, the excitement and the massive growth. And I don't think the problem is at all with mega churches. I think the problem is with a church growth mentality that cuts at the roots in an effort. That's what I always felt like Mars Hill was doing in the last few years. They would cut at the roots in an effort to grow the tree bigger. And then eventually you didn't have the root system and the tree blows over in the wind. And so you want your tree to grow, but you have to have roots going down. And so I I really attribute getting into a healthy church right after Morris Hill as, as very instrumental in me not struggling more than I did with my faith. 
And what was that transition like? Because I know sometimes even when people leave a position of church leadership, sometimes they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to take a break. This is going to be my rest church. We sat on the back row and we did not talk to anybody except the nursery workers (laughs) for many years. Um, But it did take us a few years to, for me particularly, to unfurl again and be open again. However, I was really fortunate because the pastor there had been harmed in a church very early in his walk with Christ. He had been harmed in a church, and he was just very gracious. And I remember him telling us, you know, if um, you guys take as long as you need, you sit on the back row as long as you need, and eventually I might ask you to do something. And if you say no, I might get mad, but I'll repent. And uh, he was just very, just willing to give us the room we needed. It's interesting hearing you say that about, yeah, your pastor had gone through um, his own hurt. And you talked earlier about, as a teacher, having gone through a period of struggle and how that made you a better teacher. It's just a reminder to see both of those examples of how God uses like the most trying times to make you a better person to minister to other people. Yeah, I definitely believe that. I mean, nobody wants to hear it. But And nobody wants to be faced with struggle. Nobody on the front end wants to go with and struggle. So I don't think anybody ever sees it until it's you're through it and watching it in the back rearview mirror. But then you see, yeah, that really grew me. And the Bible talks about this, where you comfort others with the comfort that you received. And if we've never struggled, we're never going to have comfort to offer others in a hurting world, I find myself right now, I really can't, I really have to work and discipline myself to be around um, like people who don't seem to have ever struggled or they're still in the naive Christian stage. Oh, let's all take it over and do these great things. And, you know, I, I was like that in my 20s. Like, why are you all you discouraged Christians? What's wrong with you? Get it together. And the Lord had to pound out some of that naivety, but I think it's called maturity. You grow in Christ through these struggles, and it's a knowledge that we need to know. Yeah, I've been thinking more and more about generational divides in the church, and particularly among women. I think on both sides of that, that young people can look above and say, okay, well, why aren't the older women in our church the ones leading this or doing this or initiating stuff? And then the older women can say, you can take it down a notch right now. So it's interesting to to hear from both sides of that. Yeah. I I know that I did have a, a period of time where I did not honor the gray hair in a congregation. And, you know, to be fair, my pastor in Seattle at Mars Hill didn't. He was doing this grand new thing. And then we all bought into that. You know, that previous generation, boy, the church is dying under them, and we are doing this grand new thing. And there were some good things that we brought. But we also despised maturity and wisdom and gray hair. And I think that it really, you know what Ecclesiastes says, is there's nothing new under the sun. And that's what I finally learned. You know what? Really is and is there. And we just kind of repeated some other revivalist uh problems from the the 20s you know it's like no been there done that god you didn't invent something new to do for god that had never done been done before uh, very humbling on the back end to look back and think of some of your pride and ignorance and and you know a lot of it what had sincere motives you want to do something great for god but you have to do it within the wisdom of god constrained by the god who says to respect your elders 
As I think about the the two places that I know that you've attended church or grown in church communities, Seattle, and then now here in South Carolina, I think about the ways that those regions can get really stereotyped in our notions of like, oh, what would church look like? And oh, a hip city like Seattle, you know, new churches and modern. And then whenever I live in the South too, whenever people talk about churches in the South, it's all, oh, Bible Belt and legalism. Da, da, da. So I wonder what has it been like, yeah, to make that transition and what you would say about some of the stereotypes stereotypes that we have of churches in different regions. Yeah, very much even having grown up in the South, I really struggled thinking about coming back. And I think some of the stereotypes are true, but at the same time, both churches in Seattle and churches out here are very diverse. And so, yeah, there are a lot of hymn singing old school white-haired churches Um, out here. But you know what? There actually were some in Seattle too. And there are some more modern um, churches out here. There are a lot more in Seattle. And I will say I do miss my hipster music. To me, it was very authentic worship. Of course, people here feel like they're authentically worshiping with the songs that they sing. And I, I try to discipline myself because really what it is, is almost a cultural thing. It's not a really I don't think it's a theological thing. I really think it's a cultural thing. And I discipline myself that this is worship. Um, And even though it doesn't resonate with me the way the music did in my churches in Seattle, um, I want to respect it and honor it for what it is. But in terms of stereotypes, one is the racial stereotype out here. But I will say in Seattle, I didn't experience any more diverse churches in Seattle than I have out here. And I actually feel like in the South, I'm seeing much more of a a push to desegregate churches. Um, It's hard. It's, uh, you know, it's like the most racially segregated hour is the 11 11 a.m. hour on Sunday mornings. Um, So getting past that is hard. But I do see a good awareness and a desire to repair and and facilitate multi-ethnic churches and diverse relationships here in the South. And I, I didn't think, I'd, I wouldn't, I thought I was ahead of the game on that in Seattle. And I don't necessarily think we were. Is there a part of the local church that holds like a special place in your heart? I really do sincerely enjoy Sunday morning worship, particularly with communion. I love the moment of communion. I just think the whole concept of communion, as, as at least as we practiced it um, in our Presbyterian church in Seattle, was just a really beautiful thing. Because you think of the title, communion, and it's coming together, and it's communion with Christ. But also the way we would do it in um, Seattle is we would all line up and take a piece off of one loaf of bread, and we would all dip it in one cup. And the imagery was this communion we have with Christ, but we are in communion with each other. He's the head, we're the body. You're an elbow, I'm a a knee, you're a toe, I'm a ear, whatever. But it was this mutual community, and it was always the high point of every Sunday service, where the pastor would preach, and then he would end his sermon, but then the next thing he would get up, and he would break the bread, and he would give like the conclusion to the sermon, and it was all about Christ and the gospel, and then this communion we have with each other. And I love that moment. I love that moment every Sunday. I love it too. At my church, we do, yeah, we do a similar style, and the communion, um, the people giving communion will say, like, Wendy, 
this is for you. And they say your name. And it's something about that, that afterwards I like choke up every week just because it feels like it feels different taking communion in my church, not because of like denominational exclusivity, but, but it's like, oh, these people know me. I am in community with these people. Yes. That's how we did it in Seattle. And, um, oh, that was such a neat moment every Sunday. What's your involvement like now in your church? Well, I've been remodeling this farmhouse, which has really sucked up a lot of my time and energy. But last um, quarter, I led a women's um, Bible study through one of my books, which was a little awkward at first. I had to say, hey, you know what? You can say negative things. (laughs) It's okay to criticize the author, even though she's right here. But um, that was really neat. We had a really neat women's study. And so I'm helping out with women's um, things there, Bible studies. I do our, our women's book table and led a um, training day. So a lot of the things I've done in the past, I've started here. What has been the biggest struggle for you in this call to kind of teach and minister to women? It's been waiting on the Lord to open doors as opposed to wanting to open them myself. Except now, you know, 20 years in, he's finally convinced me of his ability and timing. But early on, it kind of tapped my foot, you know, waiting on, okay, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. And why are these people not, how do I get my foot in the door? And uh, not really trusting that if this was God's gifting of me, that he was going to use me as he wanted in his timing. But he always has. He's always opened the doors at the time in unexpected ways. And it's always my encouragement to other women not to be discouraged if right now, this week, this month, or even this whole semester or year, the door doesn't seem to be opening. That doesn't mean it's not going to open next week. Um, And really trusting God to open and shut them as opposed to getting something into my head that I was willing to bring relationships or make things tense in order to get my way. How has your kids, your family come into play in terms of how you conceptualize calling and how do you discuss what you do with them? My boys are just now getting old enough to understand what I do. Um, They understand the math teaching, but theological writing is a little different to them. Um, and they're getting old enough now for me to start to have some interesting conversations with them about it. But in general, they know I'm a teacher and um, that I, I like to teach women, but I don't think they really yet have a full grasp of what it is. But the neat thing about them not understanding is that it makes you not think of it in a way that's too heady. You know, when kids could care less, they you know, you just published a book. Oh, that's great, Mom. And then I'm going to go play with the dog. Or can you help me get a lemonade? It just, I don't know, it gets you, keeps you in the right perspective of what really matters day in and day out of life. Yeah, grounded, humble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an advantage that women and I would say even mothers in particular have. You can only spend so much time worrying about something conceptual or even edits from me or whatever when you've got you know, kids running about. That is absolutely right. It really does. It keeps you grounded and humble and doesn't let you think too highly of yourself. How do you think um, God has used your ministry and your calling to change you? You seem like you've gone through a lot. So that's a really big question. But well, I think, you know, it sounds simplistic, but it is the truth. I've grown in my understanding of the Bible. 
That's what I've grown in. And the reason I've grown in it is, one, I was taught some things that weren't true from the Bible. And then I saw fallout, and then I had to figure out, well, what does the Bible really say? And I felt like I've had multiple points like that where I've been taught something from Scripture that wasn't, I don't think that's actually it. And forced to either choose, well, maybe the Bible's just an incoherent mass of unknowable lore, or is it a connected, coherent story of Jesus um, written by God? Is it God's revelation to us? And so if I, it's that's my conviction. It's God's revelation to us. It's a connected, coherent story. Then when I get hit up with something I don't understand, that philosophy makes me want to wrestle it to the ground. Okay, Holy Spirit, give me the cross-references. I got to go look this up. And then I don't actually care to read that much commentary of what others have said about the Bible, but I love to look up all the cross-references on something. And that's what I feel like a lot of my tension at Mars Hill, particularly over the years, and with um, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and what it forced me to do is go back to Scripture again and again. Because I saw a lot of people would have problems with them. A lot of people had problems with Mark Driscoll and just wrote off the Bible. Well, if that's, you know, what the Bible teacher says, obviously there's something wrong with the Bible. But I believed in the Bible a long time before I ever got to know Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to believe in it now. So I don't think the problems with the Bible, then what is the Bible saying? And so that's that's been the place I've parked and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. In fact, I've got a book coming out that's kind of the outworking of a lot of that wrestling. Um, is the Bible good for women? Because <laughs> that's that's been the question in my head a lot of times. I think it is. But there is a lot of things that people like Mark Driscoll have said that if the Bible really does say that, um, that's not so good. Can you give us some hints or a sneak preview of what what some of the reasons that you think and affirm, as I think most of our listeners would, that the Bible is good for women and maybe one of the best things that we have to, to ground our existence and our identity in? Well, you know, um, Rachel Held Evans said in the year of biblical womanhood that often when we talk about the Bible and women, we only talk about the good stories. So we talk, we like um, Rachel, Leah, and yeah, you kind of want to gloss over her and Sarah's okay, but what about Hagar? And, you know, you might like Esther or how things resolve for Ruth. We really like Ruth. Things resolve very nicely for Ruth. But you don't really want to talk about Dinah or Tamar. Um, and so I wanted to wrestle with the hard stories, too. And what I found, I guess, you know, like maybe my primary summary was that if you only think of it in terms of self-actualization, or, you know, earthly, be-all-you-can-be kind of mentality. Well, there are a lot of stories in the Bible that are not going to fit that. But if you really, really believe in something bigger, something transcendent, and the Bible is a very long story, multi-generation, lots of people died before ever seeing the Messiah. And if you get that, that, that doesn't mean their stories weren't good or that God wasn't good to them in their lives. And even if things ended unresolved for them, the fact that Messiah is coming and that they're going to be in eternity in heaven with him forever, it's this long story that transcends our lifetime. That's where the goodness is. And if you really get a grasp of that, um, that's how you, you suffer well. That's how you endure 
and easy in, in the mild trials or the really hard ones. You grasp onto something that's bigger. It's bigger, and that transcendent story is what gives meaning when you're just, you know, doing the day in, day out of trying to survive in the middle of a trial. But you have to be able to make that connection that you talk about, that practical theology connection, because if, it, yeah, if you can't grasp onto what the God of the universe has to do with your everyday life, then no wonder you would be so upset and frustrated at, at um, what you hear people teaching if you, if you can't make that application. Right, right. You ha it has to break into the here and now. The here and now has to break into eternity, and eternity has to break into the here and now. You have to see the two as connected. And that's Jesus. That's right. Yeah. What would you tell your younger self? What advice would you have for her? Uh, to be patient um, and not fear change and always be willing to learn and listen from someone who disagrees with you, not be threatened by it. All right, everybody, you've been listening to The Calling, a podcast from Christianity Today. This episode included Wendy Alsop, who's an author and a blogger. You can read her site at theologyforwomen.org and stick around because next year she'll have a book coming out called Is the Bible Good for Women? Follow her on Twitter at Wendy Alsop, W-E-N-D-Y-A-L-S-U-P. Rate and review this show on iTunes. Give us a comment. Let us know what we're doing right, what you wish you could hear from us. The podcast is produced by Cray Allred, hosted by Richard Clark, and our theme music comes from Lee Rosevere. It's used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?